Are you familiar with the tale of the emperor's new clothes? How many of you are familiar with, the, with that story? If you're not, I'm going I'm to summarize it for you. It's a, it's a folk tale by Hans Christian Andersen. And it, it goes like this. There was once an emperor who was more interested in his clothing, his wardrobe, than in anything else. In fact, it was said that he had a different set of clothes for every hour of the day. One day, two weavers came to town making some pretty fantastic claims, saying that they could make the most spectacular garments on earth. They claimed that they were the finest, lightest set of clothes known to man with the most beautifully intricate patterns. And in addition to this, they had a special property. They were invisible to anyone unfit for their position or for their office. And of course, the emperor had to have a set of these, the finest clothes, and thought that that would be a fantastic way for him to be able to discern which of his subjects were unfit for service. So he hired the weavers to make him a special set of clothes that he would parade through town on a day of celebration. The weavers requested the finest silks and the uh, threads of gold and silver and promptly put them in their bags, hiding them away, and set to work weaving on empty looms. After a while, the emperor became curious as to the progress that they were making, and so he sent a couple of his most trusted advisors to go and check on them. Each in turn went to see how the, the progress was on these clothes, and they were a little bit worried, thinking that they might see something or not see something when they arrived. And each, when they arrived, looked at the loom, but saw nothing on it, and thought to himself, perhaps I'm unfit for service. But each man said to himself, I can't let anybody know. And so they fawned and flattered the work of the weavers, which they could not see. They praised their workmanship to the king and to the emperor, praising the intricate detail and the beautiful patterns. Finally, the day of the celebration arrived, and the weavers declared that the emperor's new clothes were finished. Nervously, he went into the room where they had been working, and the two weavers arose, pretending to hold a suit of clothes they described as being as light as a spider's web, which only added to its value. To the emperor's horror, he could see nothing, and he wondered to himself how he could be unqualified for his office. Of course, He couldn't let anyone else know that he couldn't see the clothes, so he fell all over himself praising the weaver's exquisite work. They instructed him to undress so that they could help him on with his suit, and reluctantly the emperor disrobed and the weavers pretended to put the suit of clothes on him. It was time for the parade through town, and so the emperor and his cohort of advisors walked outside and began the processional down the street, each worried that his own foolishness would be exposed, but each carrying on with the pretense. The townspeople had heard of these fantastic clothes, and so they showed up in mass to get a look for themselves, and each was surprised to see the emperor in the state he was in, and each tried to hide his or her own surprise, fearing that they would be exposed as incompetent and foolish. People were praising the emperor's new clothes. Magnificent, said one. Stunning, said another. Until the emperor passed a small child who, overhearing the acclamation for his clothes, blurted out, as kids will often do, but he hasn't got anything on. The procession stopped, and for a moment, everyone stood stunned and silent. Of course, the child had no position, and therefore, 
could not be unfit for a position. It was an innocent remark, and it suddenly dawned on everyone that they weren't unfit, but that the emperor was naked. And they began to repeat the statement of the child, he hasn't got anything on. Hans Christian Andersen closes his story this way, as translated by Jean Herschelt. The emperor shivered, for he suspected they were right, but he thought, this procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever, as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. Last week, Pastor Franco shared our vision for Connect Groups to be a place of discipleship where you can be committed to knowing, connected in growing, and commissioned in going. And this week, I want to continue to teach on the subject of Christian community with the unabashed goal that you'd partner with us through Connect Groups. And I will uh, do this by teaching from a portion of Scripture and by sharing a little bit of my own heart for this ministry as your pastor. And I want to talk to you about Connect Group clothes. Maybe you could think of it this way, what should you wear to connect group? Colossians 3, 5 to 11 says this, it says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now Paul tells us here that there are some things that we need to do away with, to put to death or to put away, and it may not be obvious, but because... Paul is going to move on to talk about some other things that you need to put on or that you need to clothe yourself with. One of the images that he's using is that of taking off old garments, taking off old clothes. In your old life, you wore some nasty, smelly, ratty clothes, and you need to take them off and get rid of them. And so Paul mentions things like sexual immorality, impure thoughts, lust, greed, and lying. God has cleansed you of these things from your past, and he is renewing your life. So you shouldn't keep them in your closet and pull them out every once in a while to wear them. You need to take them off and get rid of them. But sometimes Christians stop right there. They grow enamored with the part of the gospel that instructs them about what not to do or what not to wear. They've taken off many of the practices of the old self, and they're really good at pointing out how others need to take off those practices as well. They get really good about critiquing the old clothes that maybe other people are wearing, and they become consumed with what not to do, how not to sin, and what began as a relationship with Jesus can change into a religion of legalism in which they are only concerned about what people shouldn't be doing. And of course, not what to do, or what not to do, rather, is part of the gospel. The gospel does teach us that there are things that are no longer fit for us, and that God's forgiveness through Jesus isn't a license to sin. But if we stop at that part where we learn what not to do, we could become like the emperor, 
parading through town, congratulating ourselves on our own religious excellence, but we're actually just walking naked because we haven't gone any further than what we should take off. We've only learned to take off the old, and we've not put anything on in itself, and that leaves us naked. But listen to what Paul says next. He says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Yes, the Bible says that there are old clothes that need to be taken off, and you need to get rid of them. You need to burn them. But there are also new clothes to put on so that you're not walking around naked. Followers of Jesus should put on Christian clothes. And I don't mean a suit and tie for Sunday morning or Jordan's V-neck and a leather jacket, depending on what kind of church you go to or what your style is. I mean the clothing of your character, and the clothing of your heart. And we're gonna examine why you should put these clothes on and what exactly these clothes are, and then finally, how you put them on. And so let's start with the why. Why do you need these new clothes? Well, you need them because you need to live like you're chosen and you're loved. Colossians chapter three, verses nine to 10, tell us that we have actually already taken something off and we've actually put something new on. It says this, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the images of its creator. You had an old self, but now you've got a new self, a new you, created by God in Christ Jesus. And when you confess faith in Jesus in his death, in his resurrection, and you're saved, the old you dies with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit enters your life to make you new. And the new you has a new heart and a transformed mind that begins to desire the things of God and his ways. You've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. But this is a case of what we often call already, not yet. You've already been made new by Jesus, but you're still being renewed in his image. It's as good as done, but it's not yet complete in your character. So while you can say that you've already put off the old self and you've already put on the new self, you need to, as Paul says, keep putting it on. And the idea of already not yet is one that's found consistently throughout the New Testament. You're saved by Christ and yet you will be saved when Christ returns. You are holy and yet God calls you to be holy. God's kingdom has come and God's kingdom is coming in the future. It's a concept, already, not yet, that expresses God's sovereignty over history and in our lives, but also expresses our participation in his plans. And with that in mind, look at the beginning of verse 12. It says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Why should you put on these new Christian clothes? Because you're God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. 
you're already holy and beloved, but we'll see when we examine what you're supposed to put on that we still have to learn to act like it. But you can't act like you're holy and beloved until you know that you are holy and you are loved. Before you can love others, you need to know that God has chosen you and that God loves you. If you don't have that assurance, you're going to be plagued by insecurities that will either cause you to act with selfishness in order to get attention for yourself, or you will behave out of defensiveness, always keeping people at an arm's length because you don't want them to find out who you really are. But consider this, you're already chosen and you're already loved. God called you. He made you holy. He set you apart for himself through the gospel of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's presence that dwells in you. You may think to yourself, I'm not holy. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how I've failed God, maybe even recently. And there is some truth to that. But there's also a lie mixed in with it. True, you've not yet lived up to all God's purposes for you or his holiness that he desires to be at work in you, but he made you holy. That is, he gave you a purpose that's all about him because of Jesus' death and resurrection. You've been set apart for him. You didn't deserve that. He did it for you, and he gave it to you when you responded to the gospel by faith. So holiness is first a matter of faith before it's even lived out in your life. But it's true that you don't live up to that holiness in your character. So you have in your own life the experience of already, not yet, holiness. God has called you for his purposes in Christ. That's a done deal. He already did it. But now he's teaching you to walk in those purposes. He won't abandon you as you learn to walk in those purposes as long as you don't abandon him. So don't have confidence in your ability to do everything correctly, but have confidence in God's ability and in what he has done for you. He's made you holy, and he is making you holy. Furthermore, God loves you. He loved you when you were still wearing the clothes of your old self, the ratty, stinky, torn and tattered clothes of your old life. He loved you, and he demonstrated that love when he sent Jesus to suffer and die for you. God loved me when I didn't deserve it. And more than that, God loves me when I don't deserve it. You know, there's a prideful part of me that does not like this at all. Because there's a part of me that really wants to deserve to be loved. I want to be loved because I deserve love, not as an act of charity from someone. I want you to love me because you think I deserve to be loved. I want my wife to love me, primarily because I want her to think that I deserve her love. On the other hand, though, I'm grateful that this is not how love works. I'm grateful that God did not design love around Stephen Tay's ideas of what love should be, or even around my desires for what I think love should be, but he designed it around himself and the demonstration of his love through Jesus. If my wife only loved me when I deserved to be loved, we wouldn't have much of a marriage, and she probably would have been gone a long time ago. And if God only loved me because I deserved it, well then, simple, he would not love me. But God loves me even when I don't deserve it. 
And that's not an excuse for sin. It's a transforming reality that as we grasp it more and more, helps to lift us out of sin as we become more enamored with the God who loves us when we don't deserve it than we are with the things of the world that lead us away from that love. And without understanding God's undeserved love for me, I can never be who he wants me to be. Further, you won't be able to love people, to love others, the way that God intends until you receive God's love by grace. Now that may sound very simple, but it's a profound truth. One of Jesus' followers, the Apostle John, who many think in the Gospel of John that he wrote is referring to himself when he says the beloved disciple, and it can sound a little bit uh, vain to call yourself the beloved disciple, but if you understand it as John saying, I've learned the kind of love that, that God has for me, then it's not so vain, it's just the reality that all believers should have, that I am the beloved disciple. I'm loved by God, though I don't deserve it. That's not a title I take out of arrogance, it's a title I take out of humility because I don't deserve that title, and yet God has given me the title beloved. And the beloved disciple, in a letter he wrote to the church, said this, 1 John chapter 4, 19, he said this, we love because he first loved us. We love because God first loved us. We must grow in our grasp and our understanding of how much God loves us. We have to learn to receive and to hold on to that love. And you might think that someone who is grasping for God's love will be turned inward. They'll become selfish. That somebody who desires to know the depths of God's love will become inward and selfish, inward focused. Because that's what happens when someone seeks love and attention from other people. And sometimes we, we might imagine our relationship with God as if we're the neglected middle child grasping for attention from his or her parents. That's what the Corinthians were doing when they argued about who was the most spiritual, as we saw in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's what the disciples were doing when they continually argued about who was the greatest or who would get to sit at Jesus' right hand. They were acting as if there was a limited amount of love and attention from God to go around. But God doesn't run out of love. So you don't have to try and wrestle his attention away from others. He loves you when you don't deserve it. And the more you understand that, the more you will look like Jesus and the more you will be able to love other people like he does. It's Communion Sunday. And the reason we've waited to take communion is because I could think of no better way for us to remember the kind of love that God has given us than through the reflection and remembrance of communion. So we're gonna take communion now together. If you have the elements, you can go ahead and get them out. At Bethany, we uh, celebrate the communion as an open communion, which means that you don't need to be in a member of this, excuse me, of this church in order to participate. We just ask that you are a believer in Jesus because what we're about to do is to confess our faith in Christ in this action and to claim publicly that I believe what this represents and that I am a participant in it. And so if you're not a participant in it, if you've not confessed faith in Christ, we don't want you to feel embarrassed or ashamed, but neither do we want you to feel pressured that you've got to do something that professes or confesses a belief that you don't actually share with us. And so it's open. If you're a believer, please join us. And if you're not a believer, feel free to abstain, and we won't make any judgment about you. Today, as you hold these elements in your hand, you hold the bread and the cup, and we are reminded 
that this is what God has done for us. And we are reminded as we hold these things in our hands that this is the demonstration of God's love. And we are reminded through communion not only of what Jesus did, but we are continually reminded through communion that we have a participation in what Christ did. Sometimes we think of faith as an abstract belief that we hold in our minds. The Bible teaches us that faith is a partnership, not a partnership so much as a participation in what Christ has done. It means that when Jesus died and his body was broken, that I died with him. It means that when his blood was poured out, that I died too. The old self, the old me that was characterized by rebellion against God and by all those things that we read in Colossians chapter 3, when Jesus died and when I put my faith in his death, I died too. And that's really good news. Because I could not live the kind of life that God designed me and intended me to have if I was still walking in rebellion against him. And I could not provide a way out of that rebellion myself. I was too entrenched in it. And it had a grip on me. In fact, the Bible calls the state of our lives prior to Jesus a state of slavery. An inability to free ourselves from our own desires and our own sinful thinking and our own rebellion against God. But God, because of his great mercy and because of his astounding love, demonstrated that love by sending his son Jesus. And when Jesus died, he died the death that we all deserve. And he didn't die as a phantom or a ghost. It wasn't pretend. His flesh was real. And as we hold the bread in our hands this morning, we recall the flesh of Christ. We recall that he is not far from us, but is near to us. So that in our brokenness and in our weakness, he is present. The word of God teaches us this, that God sent his son so that he could participate in what we all participate in, that is, death. And that he, through his death, might free those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has given us this help. And he is near to those who need his help. And so today as we take the bread, let's remember Christ's nearness. That he is not far from us, but that he is near. And if there is some brokenness in your life, if there is some sin, if there is some place where you have failed to have victory, if there is some temptation, if there is some sorrow, let the bread, the body of Christ, remind you that Jesus is not far from your need, but that he is near to your need, and that you are a participant with him. And so that everything that you need, every resource that you need for healing, for forgiveness, and for victory is available through Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the bread reminds us that Jesus came and that he was human and that he knows our needs. We thank you, Lord, that it is an assurance that you have not remained distant or aloof from our needs, but that you are with us. And today, Lord, we confess our state of neediness. We confess that without you, we can do nothing. And we confess, Jesus, that we need to know the closeness of your presence more than ever before. Lord, we ask that in the places of brokenness in our lives, in the places where we are tempted and tried, that you would help us to recall that you are with us and you will give us help when we call to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread together.
we prepare to take the cup, we are reminded that it is a representation of Christ's blood. We know that without shedding of blood, there's not forgiveness of sins. We know that a sacrifice was required for the forgiveness of our sins and that that sacrifice, if it was to be effective, couldn't be just one of us because how could I pay for your sins? But because Jesus was the Son of God, eternal and perfect, and because he willingly took upon himself our pain and our suffering, his death is sufficient for us. But it's, in, it's sufficient for us because we are now in him. And so when we take the blood of Christ, we are not only reminded of what Jesus did, but we remind ourselves of what he is doing in us, that his blood cleanses us from our sin. And not only does it cleanse us from our sin, but that we are in Christ and he is in us. And the life we now live, we do not live the way we used to live. We live it by faith in God who gave his son for us, by faith in Jesus who gave himself up for us. And so as we take the blood, we are reminded of our participation in Christ and of the new life that we have because of our partnership or our participation in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blood of Jesus that you, uh, that you willingly offered for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us through his blood help and hope and a future. Lord, we thank you that you have offered to us through it the cleansing of our sin. But we also thank you that we have this, this realization that we are no longer on our own. That we've not let, been left to our own devices to try to figure things out, but that Christ now dwells in us. And we thank you, Lord, that the ongoing work of the blood of Jesus is still effective in our lives. We thank you that it is not merely something that was done, but that is being done in us. And we thank you that the holiness that it produced is still being reproduced in us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to submit and surrender to your work that we might be holy in practice even as we stand holy before you in Christ. It's in his name we pray and we believe. Amen. Let's take the cup together. Would you for a moment just pause and in your own words, would you give thanks to God for the love that he's shown to you? Just for a moment, would you just lift up a, a prayer of thanksgiving to him and thank God for how he has loved you? Would you just remember his love for you in Jesus especially? That he has not left you, that he, his love is not dependent on you, but that he demonstrated his love before you deserved it. Would you meditate for a moment, even as we've, we've just had communion, would you meditate for a moment on the kind of love he's shown through the demonstration of his son Jesus Christ? Lord, we thank you for that love. Father, we thank you that you loved us when we did not deserve it. We thank you that your love is not dependent on our performance, but that your love came first. We thank you for the assurance of that love in our lives. We thank you for the way that you have, that you have affirmed that love in us. We thank you for the transformation of our lives by your love, and we thank you that that love continually transforms us as we move from glory to glory. Lord, would you give us an ever-deepening realization of your love. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. You should put on the clothes that God has provided for you because you need to live like you're chosen and you're loved. God loves you. He loved you before you loved him. And his love for you is greater than your love for him. And that has to be the foundation of any kind of Christian love or Christian community or it can't be genuinely Christ-like.
And so we want to talk for a moment about what exactly these new kind of clothes that we are to put on are. What style are they? Are they traditional church clothes? Are they vintage clothes from when you were a kid? Some of those older styles are coming back. Here's what the Apostle Paul said that we were to put on in place of the old nature. He says this, Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if, any, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What do you put on? You put on love. You need to love others. N.T. Wright describes the first component of this love that, that Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 3. He says to put on a compassionate heart. He describes it this way, as a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. It's not indifferent to the suffering and pain that others feel, nor is it apathetic to their struggles and their weakness. Perhaps we could say that the next thing that Paul tells us to put on, kindness, is the activity of compassion. It's not only sensitive to needs, but it meets needs, even when they don't deserve to be met or there's nothing going to be offered for them in return. Humility, Paul says. And humility is such an important piece of clothing for the Christian. Because contrary to the emperor who paraded himself around the town naked in view of the whole, uh, whole town because he was unwilling to admit that he couldn't see anything on the looms, Humility remembers that God loved us first, and so we can love others only because of his love. Humility is not self-depreciation nor a self-deprecation. It's not a willingness, uh, it's not a willingness to overlook your own gifts or, or a failure to use those gifts. It's recognizing that the gifts you have point to the Lord and using those gifts to honor him rather than yourself. It's putting the needs of others above your own needs and learning not to think of yourself more highly than you should. Bible teacher Kent Hughes describes the next trait or the next piece of clothing, meekness or gentleness as strength under control. It's not a denial of your strength. It's the use of your strength to help others rather than just to promote yourself. And patience is the willingness to put up with others. It requires the humility to see that your own opinions aren't always right and that you can be annoying and undeserving as well. It's further defined when Paul writes, bearing with and forgiving. We shouldn't be quick to abandon or give up on people. I have a confession to make. I'm impatient. This has come to light uh, and to the forefront um, recently. I think the Lord has been working on me because two of my kids recently began playing sports. Uh, Lila is playing JV volleyball for Aguam, and uh, Elias is at a city recreational soccer league. Have you ever watched a group of kids when they're first learning to play a sport? There is a tendency when kids first start to like wait and see if someone else is going to take charge to get the ball first. I I imagine as I'm watching these things play out before me, conversations that aren't really happening, but I imagine like these conversations between players like, oh, there's the ball. Who wants to kick it? Oh. Oh, okay. Oh, wait. You, you want to go? Okay. You come kick it for. Okay. Wait. Well, oh, no. No. You. Okay. And I just imagine these things playing out because, to be honest, 
it's a little bit painful. I've, I've also noticed that when, when they make a mistake, they tend to kind of shrug and laugh, which is not an emotion I have when I make a mistake playing a sport. I tend to get angry. I get mad when I miss the shot, and I want to try harder to do it better next time. It's probably a good thing that they shrug and laugh. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. My reaction is probably worse. I'm just saying this is my typical reaction, and shrugging and laughing and kind of going, ha ha, I missed it, is not how I typically respond when things don't go well and I'm playing a sport. So I'm growing from the sidelines. Jesus is working on me. Listen, in your lives there are going to be people other Christians, and maybe even some at this church, not, even, not maybe, there will be some at this church who don't do things the way that you prefer. You don't think that they're as quick as you are, or as they should be, that they're as effective as you are, that they're as talented as you are, and they will even make real mistakes, and bearing with them means you don't just avoid them, you don't kick them out of your connect group, but you seek to help them grow helping them along in their relationship with Jesus, all the while remembering that you're annoying too, and there are other people who are helping you to grow. Further, there are gonna be times when their mistakes and their shortcomings will actually hurt. Guess what? If you haven't been hurt at church yet, or you haven't been hurt by a brother or sister in Christ yet, just wait. You will be, be patient, you will be. And I'm not excusing church hurt at all. I'm not saying that that's okay. I'm just pointing out that it's bound to happen because while God has already made us holy, we're still striving to receive and implement what he's done for us. And when you're hurt, Paul says, forgiving each other. Well, cool, but what about when someone does something really hurtful? Then I get to give them the silent treatment, or, or I get to try to get back at them, right? Wrong. Because look at how Paul defines forgiveness. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There's this myth in the church that if something really hurts, that's the time to move on, to abandon ship. Can I just share with you that, that that's not in the New Testament? It's just not there. You won't find that when someone hurts me, I should start looking for another church. Because you know what that does? It short circuits growth. You stop growing. Because the Bible seems to prescribe that as we are together and we hurt each other, that there's opportunity for actual demonstration of a love that's actually like God's love. And that if nobody ever hurts you, you will never get to demonstrate this kind of love. Because God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Perhaps when confronted with situations where it's difficult to forgive your brother or your sister in Christ, you could reframe your thoughts by asking some questions like, if I were the one who committed this offense, would I want to be forgiven? Have I ever been on the other side of wronging someone and needed their forgiveness? Will holding on to this offense bring me healing? Or can I allow God to heal me when I choose to forgive? Is this offense so great that God would choose not to forgive? Because if not, I'm claiming to be a superior judge and have greater morality than God himself. Paul says that all of these traits, all of these pieces of clothing, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, he says that they're all held together and they form the perfect outfit by love. 
It's like the belt that holds them together or that piece of jewelry that you build the outfit around and that everything else complements or whatever image you like to use in your wardrobe. It's the sum of all these other traits and it holds the body of Christ together in complete unity. Unity then is not just a matter of falling in line. Unity is a matter of learning to love one another as Christ loves us. Now that's a pretty good looking outfit. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. And it's kind of fun to imagine how these various traits look and and how they should look in the body of Christ. It's kind of like standing in front of the mirror in your closet or in your bathroom to see how you would look in your best ensemble. And it's nice to hear about compassion, to imagine forgiveness, and to talk about the beauty of love. But this outfit is not meant to be worn at home like your PJs. These are your church clothes. And I really like the way that Kent Hughes put it. He said this, One other fact about this wardrobe, all these garments can be worn only in community with others, in relationship. How tempting to think that these garments would be so much easier to wear if we did not have to wear them among people. How much easier to think about compassion than to do it. How much easier to be kind when we are away from mean people. It would be far easier to put on humility and gentleness if we were not being jostled by the proud and assertive. How much easier patience is in isolation. But that is not the way it works. Christians become better Christians in community, in their families, among their associates, in their dorms, in their churches, where there is sweat and breath. The truth is, The very things we may think are keeping us from putting on these garments are the things which make possible their wearing. In other words, this is not an ensemble for the mirror. It's an ensemble for your everyday life among your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is how you put on this outfit. You can't put it on just by thinking about it. And while you can and should pray that you be more forgiving and patient, you can't even put this garment on, this ensemble on, just by praying about it. You need a place to give and to receive love. And this is one reason why the church is so important. Paul ends this segment of scripture in verses 15 to 17 by saying, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And there's a lot that could be said about that, and we're going to have to save a lot of it for another time, but I want to highlight Paul's appeal to community. Paul says that we were called in one body, and then he goes on to admonish that we would do these things, that we would teach and admonish one another. Love cannot be given nor received in isolation, and this is why the church is so important, not as a concept, but as a community, and this is where connect groups come in. Because we have many opportunities to practice what these verses teach in our church. This morning we sang psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We've given thanks to God for what he's done for us through the body and blood of Jesus. We've read, we've been taught the word of God. These are all necessary and good things. But you could come to service, you could sing and pray and hear God's word and then leave and you could fail to practice what we've talked about. 
You could even greet a few people warmly in the halls, never really get to give and receive the kind of love we've heard from God's word today. You may not hear anyone else's need personally, and so you have no opportunity to practice compassion and kindness. No one will rub you the wrong way, and so you don't get a chance to practice humility and meekness. You won't get close enough to anyone to be annoyed or slowed down by them, so you won't get to practice patience. No one will offend you, so you won't get to practice real forgiveness. Connect groups provide a smaller, closer group of believers with whom you can practice these things, with whom you can give and receive love. And so I've got the greatest connect group pitch for you ever. I want you to join a connect group so that you can be annoyed, you can be offended, you can be slowed down, and you can be hurt. Join a group where you will encounter imperfect people who will try your patience, need your help, agitate and bother you, miff you, and probably make you sad and maybe even mad. Join a connect group so that through all of this, you can put on love. Because you'll not only grow in your ability to love others with God's love, but in that group, you'll get to annoy, miff, and make other people sad, and then when you do, you'll get to also experience the kind of love that God gives you as demonstrated through other believers who love you even though you were a jerk. (laughs) And hopefully, when you're done with all of that, you'll all together know the love of God deeper because you will have practiced giving it and receiving it from one another. Now, please don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not telling you to go be abrasive in your connect group. I'm not telling you to go try and be annoying. I'm not telling you to go and try and hurt people, and neither am I giving you an excuse when you do hurt somebody. So don't hear that. What I'm saying to you is this. It's inevitable, but it's also part of the design God has made, that his love might flow through us to one another so that we can learn to give and to receive his kind of love. When I was in seminary, one of my classes required us to write a personal mission statement and a vision statement expressing what we believe God made us for, how he thought he was leading us in the future. And if I were to rewrite this, I'd I'd probably change a number of different things. But there uh, is is something to this that I wanted to share with you this morning because it's something that's been on my heart for like years, decades even. And I wrote this. I desire to improve the quality of people's lives by working through a local church. My desire is to minister in a setting that allows me to meet the needs of the people around me. I want the community of believers to be able to experience as much of God's kingdom as possible now as we wait for its final fulfillment. This involves the church functioning more as a community center than as a traditional church. It will be a place where we can meet all kinds of physical and spiritual needs for our members and for those who live in our social networks. Now, I would change some things about that, but... I believe that the church is the best way to meet the world's needs, especially spiritual needs. It's the best because it's God's idea. And God's idea was not merely for a weekly gathering or a community center, like I put, but his idea was for a community of people connected with one another because they're connected to him. And this is why connect groups are a part of the vision of this church. They weren't something that just kind of, oh, look, other churches are doing this. We should do it too. No, they came from a place that had been thought about and prayed about for a long, long time because they are a way for us to give and receive God's love. Connect groups provide a place for you to give and receive that love of God by meeting needs and producing the fruit of the Spirit together. 
They provide opportunities for the body of Christ to generally care for one another and to grow in the unity of God's love. And this is why we're appealing to you to join a connect group, which will inevitably lead to inconvenience, try your patience, and it definitely will not live up to your ideals because you'll be there. And so will other flawed people. But you won't be the only ones there. God's Spirit will be present to help you to learn to love one another and express God's love more fully. So put your Christian clothes on, or if I may, put your connect group clothes on. And don't parade around naked because of your religious beliefs that you've taken everything off that you need to, but clothe yourself with what God intended, the clothes that can only be worn truly in community with other believers. Clothe yourselves with the reality of what God has done for you. And when you go to participate in a connect group, don't show up naked. Don't, literally or metaphorically, don't show up with some idealistic version of that community in mind. Because it won't be idealistic. It won't be what you've got, some vision you've created in your mind. Most of the time, those imaginations are selfish and they revolve around us. Instead, when you go, put on a compassionate heart. Put on kindness and look for opportunities to serve. Put on humility and put others before yourself. Put on gentleness and and answer carefully with your words. Put on patience and be kind and wait for other people. Bear with one another. Forgive each other. So the point of this morning's service, the the take-home is pretty simple. Will you join and be a part of this vision by participating in the community of believers at Bethany, particularly by being part of a connect group? Will you be a part of, of what we believe God wants to do to help to raise us up to receive his love and to learn to give his love to one another? Because that's the point of these groups. They're not so that you have another evening taken up on the night of the week. They are so that you might put on the clothes that God designed you to wear as his chosen, holy, and beloved. Close your eyes with me for a moment. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much that you've called us, that we're chosen, we're holy, and we're beloved. That you love us, Lord. And Father, we confess that sometimes our own attitudes are not super conducive to community with other believers. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. And we ask, Lord, that of this body of believers, you would raise up not just groups, but God, you'd raise up in us a spirit of love that reflects your own love for us. We pray that in our connect groups this coming term, that more than some conversations about a curriculum, more than uh, some hopefully good food that we get to eat together. Lord, that you would help us to learn to give and to receive love from one another. We pray, God, that you would help us to clothe ourselves, especially, Lord, with humility, that we might even take the first step to recognize I need community with other believers. It's not something that I can just do without. And I ask, Lord, that you would help our love for one another to become the beacon you said it would be, that others will know we're your disciples when we love one another. Lord, we pray that you would use this vehicle, this ministry, to change the the attitude of our congregation and even the culture of our church to better reflect the love of God. And Father, I pray that we would hear fantastic testimonies 
Testimonies of forgiveness. Testimonies of people whose hurts have been healed because they've been able to receive love from a group of believers that, that showed patience. Lord, testimonies of, of how they were able to understand God's love because of how a, a group of believers in a, in a small group, in a connect group, loved them well. Lord, testimonies of forgiveness and reconciliation. Testimonies, Lord, of, of a deepening appreciation for your love as we learn to love one another. We thank you for that, Father, and we ask for your grace to accomplish all that you want to through these ministries in the coming weeks, in the coming months, and in the years ahead. We thank you for that, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Keep your head bowed for just a moment. I want to make an appeal to you. If you are not a believer in Jesus, if you've never given your life in, to, to Christ, if you've never confessed faith in him, today we've done a, a number of things that may have seemed strange or confusing to you if you're not familiar with church, like worship or like uh, taking communion together. And the reason for this is because we want to publicly acknowledge Jesus. And faith in Christ is more than uh, a belief in your mind. It's more than a hand that you raise on a Sunday morning. Faith in Christ is acknowledging the truth of who Jesus is, that he is Lord, that he died for your sin when he died on the cross, that God raised him from the dead on the third day, and that he did this not only for you, but that he wants to do it in you, that he wants to redeem your life. And today, perhaps you've come to church and you know that there are things in your life and in your past that have brought you shame. There's a sense in, in the interior of your life, though you don't know how to define it or explain it, that you're not right with God. There's a longing for meaning. There's a longing for a sense of reconciliation and purpose in your life. And maybe you've not been able to put a finger on how do I define that. You don't know the words to use. Maybe you don't know all the Christian lingo. But what I would tell you today is this, that God created you to be in a relationship with him. That sin is a failure to acknowledge his good purposes for your life and living in a way that denies him and rebels against him. And that separates you from him and from his good purposes. And that what you sense in your life is a guilt or a conviction over that separation from God. But God is not happy with the state that you're in because he loves you and he wants you to be in relationship with him. And so at just the right time in history, God sent his son Jesus. God in the flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, become human to die for you, to take the penalty of your sin, the wages of sin being death. He bore that for you. And on the third day, because the penalty was paid, God raised him from the dead. And to be right with God, God only requires this, that you will put your faith, that is, that you will trust Jesus. That's what faith means. It means trusting Jesus with your life. Not only believing the facts about Jesus, but believing that he died for you and that he wants to do a work in you. And if you don't have a relationship with God today and he hasn't done that work in you, that is available. And it's not available to you because you've earned it or you deserved it because you showed up and, and you cleaned your life up, cleaned your life up first. You can't do that. The only way is simply to receive God's grace by faith. Will you do that this morning? If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, if you've come and you've been convicted of your sin, you sense the Holy Spirit, God working in your life, 
He's brought you here this morning so that you might know him. If you don't have that relationship with him and you want to begin that today, you want to express your trust in Jesus, then I want to ask you to do something simple so that I can pray with you. If you're here and you don't know, and you don't know Christ, would you just lift up your hands so that I can pray with you? If you don't know the love of God and you want to experience that love through his son Jesus this morning, would you just lift up your hands so that I can pray with you and respond? Is there anybody like that? I'm not going to wait long, but I wanted to give the opportunity. Don't hesitate. If you're here today, God has brought you here, so don't wait on it. Anybody like that? If you've joined us online and you'd like to respond, just text the word HOPE to 413-360-61 and we'll respond to you there. Anybody like that? Thank you, miss. Is there anybody else? I'm going to pray, and this prayer doesn't save you. If you raised your hand or you wish you would have, you pray this prayer in your own heart. You make it your own. And when the service is over, there will be a few people here at the front of the sanctuary. Uh, they're just leaders in the church, and we would love to be able to pray with you. And we have a gift to give you, a, a book to help you to know what's the next step that you take in your relationship with Christ. If you raise your hand, will you make this prayer your own? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you, and I confess that I have been separate from you. You know my guilt and my sin, and I confess it to you this morning and admit that I need you. I thank you, God, for the good news that you didn't give up on me, that you didn't abandon me, and that you still love me. And I thank you that you showed that love when Jesus died for my sin. I pray, Lord, today that you would make me new. I believe that Jesus died, and I believe that you raised him on the third day, and I put my trust in him. I ask, Lord, that you would change my life, that no longer would I live for me, but that I would have a new life in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach me to walk with you always. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer again, please come speak to one of the leaders who will be here at the front or to myself after service is over. Otherwise, I'm going to let you go, but here's the kicker. Out in the lobby, there are tables set up with connect group leaders behind them, and there's an opportunity for you to put into practice what we've talked about this morning, to say, I want to be a part of a community of believers where I can learn to give and to receive love the way that we talked about this morning, because I don't want to be a naked Christian. I want to be a Christian clothed in the kind of love that can only be shown in community with other believers. So make sure that on your way out you stop, take a look at those connect groups, sign up for one, because we want you to be a participant in what God is doing in this community of believers. We will see you again tonight at 6 p.m. for second Sunday at 6. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.